Welcome to Cinema Talk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. While our campus theaters remain closed, the Cinematheque continues its series of view-at-home movies with Raining in the Mountain by director King Hu. In a Ming Dynasty monastery, competing bands of thieves, corrupt monks, and martial artists converge as the temple's abbot, charged with protecting a sacred scroll, prepares to name his successor. King Hu's aesthetic and technical powers are in full effect in this nimble battle of wits, brought to life through his characteristic, finely-tuned choreography. Hailed as spectacular, exhilarating entertainment in the New York Times, Raining in the Mountain is one of the final signature achievements of Hong Kong's original action master. The Cinematheque is providing a limited number of opportunities to view Raining in the Mountain at home for free. To receive instructions on how to view at home, simply send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu with the subject line, Raining. Our returning guest this week is David Bordwell, Jacques Ledoux Professor of Film Studies right here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Bordwell has written about King Hu in his books Poetics of Cinema and Planet Hong Kong, both of which you can find at his website, davidbordwell.net, along with numerous blog posts about King Hu and a wealth of scholarship covering every corner of cinema. In 2007, he received a special award for excellence in Asian film scholarship from the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Here's our conversation. David, welcome to Cinema Talk. Thanks for joining us again. Nice to be here. So you've devoted a lot of energy to studying and writing about the films of King Hu over the years. I thought we might start by asking how you first encountered his work and what some of the qualities might have been that made you sit up and take notice. Yeah, I uh, had read about him in various film magazines in the 1970s. He had just um, achieved a certain amount of fame with A Touch of Zen. And that had been played around at various film festivals. And I read in Sight and Sound and other magazines about, about it. And it sounded really interesting, but it was the 70s. I had just come to Madison in 73, and I hadn't had a chance to see any of his films. But I was quite interested in him. And so I tried to keep up just reading about him. But then I went to Paris in 1979, and I remember walking down the street, and I saw this theater that had a poster uh, and a uh, Marquis saying, Raining in the Mountain. I said, I knew that was a King Who film. And it was in English, so that was even better. Little did I know, of course, it would be subtitled in French, but so I went. And this is the film, of course, we're talking about today. And I really was impressed. I thought it was a tremendous film. It wasn't quite what I'd expected because I, I guess for reasons we'll talk about, it's not as typical as those films that were being written about, like Dragon Inn and um, Fate of the Khan, and especially Touch of Zen. But nonetheless, it was a very striking film, and I was very interested. Uh, but again, I had only seen that one movie. And then later, <clears throat> Kristen and I were trying to sort this out. Later, we saw in the, in the, the early 80s, we saw uh, several of his films, and he had, was brought as a guest to the Chicago Film Center in the early 80s. And they did a whole retrospective of his, of his work, and we drove down to see it and him. And that was terrific. We got to see a lot of the films that we hadn't seen, including Touch of Zen and others. I'd already seen Touch of Zen, actually, on a, on a flatbed. I had gone to the British Film Institute doing research, and they had a print of it. So I did watch it on the flatbed, but it's, of course, it's not the same. So we kind of got immersed in King Hu in the early 80s, and that fed into our interest in Hong Kong film generally. So when we started to see films by Choi Hak and, and Jackie Chan and John Woo and others in the late 80s and early 90s, 
we got really keenly interested. And that was when I got so interested in Hong Kong film that I decided to teach it and then go to Hong Kong and, uh, and participate in the festival. So it was King Hu that really got me into Hong Kong film on one track. The other track was Bruce Lee. I was always interested in Bruce Lee films from the 70s on. And uh, so the two of those kind of blended together and became the sort of the nexus of my interest in Hong Kong movies. So King Hu was already working in the Hong Kong movie business before he started directing. What should we know about his early life and career to better understand his work? Well, he's an interesting case because he sort of represents an artist who was part of the three Chinas. He, he's born in Beijing, but he comes to Hong Kong and works in Hong Kong as an actor and screenwriter and a radio personality, uh, and then gets into film. Uh, through, through his acting connections and becomes a bit, bit player and then works as an assistant director and then finally becomes a director himself uh, and then goes to Taiwan. So he really winds up working in the three major centers of, uh, of uh, Chinese film culture. He didn't really work in Beijing that much on cinema, but he was, you know, from, he was a northerner and so from that part of China. So he kind of blends together those three aspects of Chinese culture, Chinese film culture, particularly in Hong Kong and Taiwan. It has to be said at the outset that his films in Hong Kong were quite unusual for Hong Kong films. Uh, even though he fitted into the Shaw Brothers genre paradigm in the early days, he, he made really the first, what many people consider the first true Shaw Brothers martial arts film. It's not a typical Shaw Brothers martial arts film by my lights. And I think that uh, Zhang Che, another great director from from Hong Kong actually typified much more what the Shaw Brothers product was gonna be like. King Hu never really was very much at home with mainstream commercial um, genre filmmaking. He was much more of a self-conscious artist in a genre, but nonetheless much more ambitious and much less constrained to turn out more formulaic films. So in a way this reflects, I think, his, his uh, Chinese and mainlander uh, identity as a kind of person thinking he's really working in the realm of high art. He was a painter as well. He painted a lot of pictures and had renown as a painter and a cartoonist. So he really thought of cinema as a fine art, I think, more than the uh, other directors who worked in the Hong Kong film industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so as a filmmaker, he arrives sort of fully formed with Come Drink With Me, um, which you alluded to, the, his first Wuxia movie. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the state of martial arts cinema leading up to this film and then the kind of impact that this movie had on the genre? Yeah, I mean, there were uh, a lot of martial arts films made in Hong Kong at this time for both Cantonese and Mandarin audiences. Central to the history of Hong Kong film is this language split because Mandarin is the language of most of the mainland. There are many languages on the mainland, but that's one of the primary ones. Uh, and Cantonese, the language of Southern China, considered a language or a dialect or whatever, that is uh, a different sort of thing. And so the, the upshot was that Hong Kong, which is predominantly uh, a Cantonese language speaking community, nevertheless was too small a market to support an indigenous cinema. There was Cantonese language cinema for sure. There was a lot of uh, movie making in Cantonese, but the big money came from Singapore, which was a Mandarin centered uh, film company called Shaw Brothers. And they uh, made films in Hong Kong, but in Mandarin for the wider Chinese uh, diasporan market, as well as for um, Taiwan. That was the central market and Mandarin was the official language of Taiwan. So you have this split language to begin with and uh, the advantage for King Hu is coming in as a Mandarin speaker, he's able to fit right in to the Hong Kong product plan. And he makes um, Come Drink With Me, 
uh, as uh, sort of what was then called a new wuxia film, a new martial arts movie, much influenced by Japanese film and Western film. If you had to pick the two primary influences, I think it would be Japanese swordplay pictures, which Shaw Brothers distributed throughout Asia. They, they, for instance, had all the Zatoichi pictures. And the, um, the other big influence, I think, is uh, the Italian Western, where the idea of something that's quite vigorous, in your face, violent, was picked up quite heavily by Shaw Brothers, particularly Chang Che, who really developed that line of, of representation. So the uh, King Hu's film is still rather different, though, because it's a gentler film. It's not an, exactly in your face. But he brings to the Wuxia film the, the uh, aesthetics of Chinese opera and Chinese painting so that the martial arts on display are very much more uh, tied to dance and choreography and, and a graceful enactment of body interaction rather than what we think of as that tight punching kung fu style that's more characteristic of southern martial arts so he brings that he was not particularly himself knowledgeable about the um, about the martial arts he was much more interested in them as a physical and visual representation but he did hire a very important choreographer a man named han yingji who was actually a um uh, a martial artist himself, but who brought to the representation of physical action this kind of balletic or choreographic quality. So we have in King Hu someone already with pretty high artistic uh, ambitions turning to this genre, just as it's starting to rehabilitate itself, to develop a, a, a distinctive Hong Kong look, the so-called new age or modern um, kung fu and swordplay movie. The Wuxia film starts as a, as a swordplay film uh, with um, uh, the, all the martial virtues of, of that, different weaponry, different kind of chivalric code. And then it devolves around 1970 into the Kung Fu film, the film of, of unarmed martial combat, uh, which we, we would typify today with somebody like Bruce Lee. So that whole genre, mega genre, uh, really characterized the output of not only Shaw Brothers, but other Hong Kong studios throughout the 70s. And the ambitions of King Hu didn't fit smoothly into that. He didn't particularly like working for Shaw Brothers. And so very soon after he made Come Drink With Me, he then went on to make films in Taiwan. Right. Um, one of the films that followed in the wake of Come Drink With Me was a sequel called Golden Swallow, which was directed by Shaw's other leading director, Chang Che. So this is a very different movie. Despite being the title character, Golden Swallow is completely sidelined in the narrative. It's much more about the men, and that's typical of Chang Che. Even though he gave good roles to women, he was much more interested in what he called staunch masculinity, which was the clash of of loyalty, brotherhood on the one hand with the demands of the world and compromise and political and personal sacrifice. So all these things are very, for Chang Che are represented in these male heroes, usually a duo, a pairing of male heroes who work out their psychological problems and their physical problems with each other. Uh, whereas King Hu was much more interested in women. He was interested in politics. He was interested in history. He was interested in spirituality. He was interested in a lot of things that don't fit into the classic Shaw Brothers storyline, which was basically a revenge plot. Most Shaw Brothers martial arts films outside the King Who work are really about vengeance and payback 
and uh, an honor and things like that. Whereas King Hu, as you'll see in a film like Rain in the Mountain, is interested in other things. He's interested in redemption, for instance. He's interested in forgiveness and he's interested in much more positive virtues than the staunch masculinity that, that uh, Chang Che and others pushed. Yeah, it's certainly much more brutal um, in the other versions. Um, so as you mentioned, he leaves Shaw Brothers after um, Come Drink With Me and starts making movies in Taiwan with uh, Dragon Inn. And that continues straight through the simultaneous production of Legend of the Mountain and Raining in the Mountain in South Korea at the end of the 1970s. So I guess what were some of the risks and rewards that he got from becoming an independent filmmaker and leaving the studio? Well, he came with a big reputation to Taiwan because Come Drink With Me had been a big hit. And uh, so they uh, companies were willing to give him a lot of leeway. He took a long time to make films. He was not able to do what he would have had to do at Shaw Brothers, which would turn out, say, three or four a year. He needed six months on a film at least and often longer. Uh, Touch of Zen took three years. So there was that meticulous preparation and planning that he demanded, doing historical research on costumes and sets, political backgrounds, uh, the personalities of historical figures, all these things. He loved to read. He was a big, big reader. He was kind of a scholar. And he did in intense research on things like details of costumes. I mean, people who worked with him said he really would study the buttons and the inside fabric of coats and things like that. He really was much more meticulous than the sort of generic kind of stuff that was being done at Shaw Brothers, where they had a huge costume collection. They would just go and pick them out and re redesign a few, but then just go in and shoot the movie. Whereas he's, every project was a new one, a fresh one for him. And he tried lots of different things. If you look at that, that range of films you mentioned from the late 60s to the late 70s, there are a lot of different kinds of movies. I mean, you have one extreme, which is something like um, The Valiant Ones, which is um, uh, virtually a catalog of how to shoot a martial arts action scene. I mean, almost every scene is an action scene. It's an incredible movie because you think he can't top this and then he tops it again and again. That's one extreme. On the other hand, you have films like um, All the King's Men, which has no martial arts in it at all. It's just about court intrigue, palace intrigue, and the political maneuverings of different factions inside the uh, Imperial Palace. So he was quite wide ranging in the kinds of stories he wanted to tell. He tells a ghost story in Legend of the Mountain, a sexy ghost story in Legend of the Mountain. But then he also has uh, films about um, so a touch of Zen, which are really sort of unclassifiable as a kind of uh, Zen martial arts film. So he has all these different kinds of tendencies in his work, which continue right up to his unfinished projects at the end of his life. So he never he found the kind of flexibility and freedom in Taiwan that he couldn't have had really in Hong Kong, at least on the big budget kind of production level he worked. So Taiwan and various other companies, so that, for instance, a Hong Kong company like Golden Harvest would underwrite something like um, The Valiant Ones. They, they did that for him and Fate of Lee Khan. So he could get financing from Hong Kong to some extent, but his base of operations was Taiwan because that industry welcomed him more openly. Mm -hmm. And you can see the level of um, meticulousness even in the opening of Raining in the Mountain, which does, uh, there's a considerable amount of screen time devoted to just uh, inventorying the props as they're unpacked in this right. movie. Right. All the, the weapons, the weapons that are barely used, but you get to see these close ups of them, these beautiful images. Yeah, exactly. Or the thing with, well, I mean, just the idea of beginning a Kung Fu film with people walking through a forest. You know, I mean, that's a much more Japanese way to start a movie. I mean, the Shaw Brothers movies 
they're fighting from the beginning. They're fighting in the credit sequence because often the low-car <laughs> lung sequence is a very fierce fight demonstrating the martial arts techniques that are going to be seen in the film later. So from the beginning, there's action of a in a classic um, Shaw Brothers pro project, whereas King Hook has got all this time to show you these shots of nature, of the landscapes, and then the exploration of the monastery, which is spectacular, mm -hmm. just spectacular. David Lean would die to get this kind of, <laughs> a real location like this, actually several locations. There were several monasteries that were used for this. They cut them together in different ways. This thing just goes on forever. It's stupendous. And, you know, he just dwells on this in a way that no, you know, Mark Chopsaki or standard martial arts movie would. It's much more pensive, I wouldn't say meditative, but much more leisurely kind of filmmaking and laying out this atmosphere than you would get in, in a classic martial arts film. But it's just, it's about the details. It's about showing you the architecture, the color combinations, the depths of these corridors and things like this. He's just fascinated by this whole milieu, you know, and that shows in this sort of way, leisurely way he introduces you to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nearly an hour into the movie before the fights start and similar to Touch of Zen is the kind of the same way. But, but what's so great about that is one of the, when I say he tried different things, I think one of the things he tried was he set himself a kind of problem, which is, can I make a chase and pursuit substitute for an action scene? Can, mm -hmm. I, can I make the action really about people running around these little honeycomb spaces and spying on each other? And that to me is his substitute for a combat scene. And as you say, we do finally get some combat scenes, but mm -hmm. for the first hour or so, it's really these kind of, you know, it's a heist movie. At one level, it's a heist movie. How do we get this scroll, you know? And so the, the various maneuvers people use, dodging in and out of the space, is really quite incredible. And I think for me, it's such a visual treat to watch these little pockets of space being activated by a little head popping into one and someone running down a corridor and ducking out of the way just before someone else shows up. I mean, this kind of it's the kind of choreography you get in a martial arts scene, but applied to like an expansive space rather than people just fighting in the middle of a, you know, a street or something like that. So in a way, to me, the action scenes are these peekaboo or hide and seek kind of scenes with the uh, people trying to get the scroll. I completely agree. The early scene where they're sort of darting around the house is a total highlight of the movie for me. It's, it's interesting because, you know, one of his sort of signature strategies was uh, in those early films, like Come Drink With Me and Dragon In, and to some extent, Fate of the Khan, is that he would gather all the plot elements in a single tight space of an inn. These were so-called in films, where the action is all these different characters with different plans and projects come together in it, and then you kind of realize once they get there that they're kind of connected. Their character, they're pretending to be somebody else, but they're actually in, in league with somebody who's in the inn, that sort of thing. It's kind of so that the end becomes this convergence point of all these different character storylines. And I hadn't noticed it, so I rewatched this film again, but that's kind of the case with this too, totally. except that it isn't an inn anymore. It's this huge space of the temple and the monastery where all these different plot lines come together. You've got, on the one hand, the theft of, this, of the sutra. And it turns out there's two contending forces who want to get that, this, this precious uh, scroll. So that's one storyline. But there's another storyline about the succession of the abbot, who's going to become the new uh, head of the monastery. So there's this kind of political maneuvering among the various monks who are candidates for this job and who's, who is he going to pick to be a successor. Then there's this third storyline, which is about uh, the redemption of a convict, a thief, 
an accused thief, falsely accused, who becomes uh, starts work as just a, a menial laborer at the monastery, but gradually becomes elevated. So you have these three different storylines, I think, connected and affecting one another. So it turns out that the thieves who are there for the scroll are in contention with or fighting with the convict who's trying to protect the scroll, or the, the political intrigue among the monks uh, is in, created an alliance with one of the pairs of the, of the thieves. So it's all you know woven together just the kind of way he would do with one of his in films. And that I'd never noticed before until I watched it again. And another thing about these um, characters that they often have secret identities or, you know, they're uh, passing themselves off as something that they're not. And King Hu also leaves us in the dark sometimes as yeah. to who these people are. Absolutely. Um, they're, the characters are hiding their identities from each other and he's hiding them from us. Absolutely. One of the movie begins with the villains. I mean, the villains are the ones who show up. They lead us into the monastery. The movie is beautifully constructed that way because the bulk of the action takes place inside the monastery. And you never really leave it. But the beginning of the film, sort of the open, the prologue, is them walking through these beautiful forests. And, and you think, these are our positive characters. These are going to be the heroes of the movie. Yeah. They're not. They're the villains of the movie. But we're attached to them first. And they're really the most positive character, the convict, comes in quite late compared to them. He seems to be a minor character until he takes up the whole story at the end. But then you have this bookend at the other end, an epilogue, where having we've seen the forest very in very benign ways at the beginning of the film. We've had the bulk of the movie inside the monastery. And then at the end of the film, we go back into the forest. And it's a very different place then. It's much more a scene of this conflict and, and threatening action where people are going to get killed. And eventually, um, we're going to see the, the resolution of the story in that same space. So it's kind of got this ABA structure to it very nicely bracketing off what what uh, what the central section is about. And as you say, there's so much um, deceit. There's so many people play, pretending to be something they're not, including the monks who are supposed to be sort of more pure and, and uh, holy and are just completely, you know, uh, many of them are just out for themselves. They're just politicians. <laughs> and so they're, they're, the, the movie unrolls itself very gradually, as you say. We start to reveal more and more about these characters and it's a very spacious kind of sense of a movie. It's long, uh, about 114 minutes, I think. But it's, it fills it up with lots of balance between the locale, the spectacular locale, the plot lines, and this gradual revelation of the characters. So finally, the convict becomes an important a character that I don't think you would have predicted at the outset. One of the things that struck me about watching the film this time was the way it's a, a, the characters create a kind of cross-section of society. I mean, you've got the rich, wealthy man who's a collector of documents. Uh, he wants the scroll because he's a wealthy, presumably merchant or something like that, businessman. You've got the general who represents the military wing of society, and he wants it also because it's, it's valuable. Both of them are under the illusion that the, the value of the thing lies in the thing itself as an artifact. That's a mistake, it turns out, but they think that. But you've also got the cross-section of the sort of the underclass, <clears throat> the thief, um, Locke and White Fox are the characters who are kind of like the hired guns who are going to do this. You've got the monks who have supposedly retreated from society in a spiritual pursuit, but it turns out they're very worldly. They smuggle things into the, into the monastery. They fight amongst themselves. They're easily, you know, they complain and so on. They don't want to work, for one thing. It's one of the reasons they're there, apparently. <laughs> and, and then you've got you've got the convict 
who is accused of being a thief, who's been judged badly by society by false testimony on the part of um, one of the officers. And he's redeemed by accepting his fate, by willing that he will go to the monastery and serve humbly as a servant. He's the one who becomes the next abbot. He's the one who's elevated because he understands the nature of responsibility and power. You can read the whole movie as kind of about who should have power. And it turns out the person who should have power is the person who doesn't want it, you know, who has no ambition for it. That's going to be the wisest leader. And, and then the, the, as a kind of reversal, you have a parallel to his redemption uh, in, in White Fox's redemption, because she at the, the, the end of the film is her becoming a nun. So she, even she's given up. She's the most reprobate character probably in the movie. She's completely ruthless and out for herself. Mm-hmm. And yet at the end of the movie, she's willing to, to cut her hair and become a member of this society. So in a way, he's, his redemption has transformed not only the monastery, but her too. This is typical of King Hu, uh, this kind of forgiveness, um, an openness to, um, to the, the more positive virtues, the, the gentler virtues, which is so rare in the Kung Fu film, which is usually about, about the negative virtues, about demanding justice. Whereas this is about forgiveness. Everybody gets forgiven, except those who refuse to take it. So there's a way in which I think the film is a much, is a kind of an anti-Shaw Brothers film. If you look at this film in the context of the other films that are coming out in the 1970s, this is kind of an anti-Shaw Brothers movie. Now you can argue that in other films, like Lau Kar Lung's films are also about forgiveness to some degree. They're not as ruthless in their pr- pr- prosecution of vengeance as, as the Chang Che films. But this one really does seem to be more in touch with spiritual values like Buddhism and things like that than, than the Lau Kar Lung films are. With Lau Kar Lung, it's about the martial arts are not art. They're about, about, they're not about vengeance. They're not about violence. They're about perfection of the self. And that doesn't include those, those vices. Whereas with King Hu, I think he thinks there's a more spiritual thing. It isn't about the martial arts per se. It's about living in society, about civilization and the mistakes of Chinese history and how in a way you can supersede the mistakes of Chinese history by embracing this idea of acceptance and uh, essentially spiritual regeneration. So that came out to me this time much more strongly watching it again than I had seen before. Describing what makes King Hu great, people often cite the elegance and grace of his form and use words like balletic to describe his combat scenes. Um, I've seen him cited as inventing the idea of the action choreographer. Um, What are some of the qualities, I guess, that make it seem so balletic to us? Well, he's, it's very strange because actually, I think of him as a rather experimental filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think he mastered, certainly working at Shaw's, he mastered traditional smooth filmmaking, storytelling filmmaking, continuity editing, framing the shot, all that stuff. And like people emerging at this time, nearly everybody was shooting in scope because it was a cheap way to get a kind of a production value. Shaw's converted to scope in the mid 60s. So he uses these things, traditional materials in a very straightforward way. But his conception of, first of all, of movement was that of, I think, as, as has been mentioned a lot, was more close to dance than it is to um, what we think of as traditional aggressive pugilistic martial arts. So we get much more running, jumping, leaping, uh, that sort of thing that 
that really has to be filmed a certain way and that there are traditional ways to film it that make it look good for sure. But King Hu filmed in ways that make it look a little strange, I think. He, for instance, even though he liked the fluidity of the movement and he liked to see the actors in, in space, he cut things up quite a lot. He was a cutter. Uh, and that's, not, I think, still not given enough credit for. The way he conceives of movement is really partly uh, a matter of chopping a movement up into very dynamic bits, which are often too fast for your eye to, to really capture, I mean, to really grab. So sometimes his shots are so short that you sort of are hit by the fact that, what did I just see, you know? Uh, it's more marked in some of the other films, um, Valiant ones especially, but there are many of his other films where the shots just go by so fast, you're almost not quite sure of what you're seeing. The famous Bamboo Groves uh, battle in Touch of Zen, where the characters are apparently jumping up to the top of these bamboo trees and jumping down, but hovering in space to fight with each other. I mean, today we do this with special effects and, and green screen and, and computer generated imagery. But of course, he didn't have any of that. And he usually didn't use wires, which is what a lot of Hong Kong filmmakers would have used before computer generated effects. What he did was try to make these shots hang there in space for a while so it looked like people were actually fighting in midair. But you can't be absolutely sure because the shots are so short, you get the impression that they're doing this. But the main thing is just this general sense of a flurry and this exchange of energies across these bodies, and then the shots are over. And I tell you, when you look at these things on the editing bench, on, on a flatbed, these shots are really weird looking when you actually see what they are. They really are not what you'd expect. So his, his approach to action is very distinctive, very personal for him, and it involves not just the choreography of the, of the movements, but the placement of the camera and the cutting. Um, in uh, good examples of uh, that, I think, are in the main scene where there is a fight, as you said, in, in uh, Raining in the Mountain, where the characters are trying to grab this parcel from one another, back and forth. And that parcel goes to almost every zone of the screen. I mean, it's in the corner, it's in the center, it's in the side, because their movements are so rapid. And the cuts are so fast that you're kind of flipped around from side to side, while trying to track this thing that's bouncing around in the, in the space of this room. And that sort of dynamic oomph, that bonus impulse that's given by the editing, I think, is very characteristic of King Hu. He wants that slightly uncertain energy you get from saying, did I really see that? Did they really do that? Uh, at the same time, though, he was very good at long shots and not cutting of hiding the machinery that lets characters do certain wild things. Like these characters can really jump. They jump like crazy. And one of the reasons they can jump so well is because he was one of the first. He was, I don't think the very first, but he was one of the first to put trampolines in his set so that the actors, and particularly the martial arts who, uh, artists who doubled for the actors, would be would jump from a height, hit the trampoline, and then go sailing off. And he'd film that part of their trajectory that was sailing off. So it really looks like they're doing this stuff. And they are really doing it, but the trampoline is what... I remember when I visited Shaw Brothers Studios long after all this and saw they have a trampoline room. They did that, I don't know now, a trampoline room with nothing but all these trampolines. I took a photograph of it. Little trampolines, <laughs> big trampolines. They had all these trampolines. And, you know, obviously King Who made, made great use of them, but they became common for others too. So in the long shots, 
when you see um, raining in the mountain, you'll see this beautiful composition of, the, of looking down a corridor along a, a diagonal sort of porch-like structure, an open tier kind of patio. And then suddenly this sort of this character just says flying into the frame in the distance, you know, like hopping over the wall and coming down. You're going, whoa, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sort of, you know, visual kind of delight of like seeing these bodies moving through space. But, but kind of catching them on the fly, seeing them in the corner of the frame or seeing them in the distance, those kinds of things I think are an extra oomph rather than just simply in your face, the character comes flying at you as we might do in the West. Those kinds of things are very distinctive of his style. He was always looking for these little grace notes that he could import into his shots. And uh, physical action was one of them. One of the things that I love about the jump cuts and quick cuts that he uses is that, you know, we usually think of jump cuts as sort of collapsing or alighting time. But what's amazing is that in his movies, they take place in real time as far as the story is concerned. You know, it's not the the filmmaker is jumping ahead from some external vantage point. The characters are moving faster than the camera can capture. Nothing is skipped in the story. That's right. The story time, it's weird. The story time stays consistent, even though you get the sense that it's been compressed or skipped over, but it's actually consistent. These characters just move too fast, you know? That's true. And this is especially noted in other films. This is a more sedate movie. Mm -hmm. But I think, as I said before, that idea that that he's trying to substitute chases and hide and seek for um, for straight on face hard hand-to-hand combat is something that allows him to create more sort of sinuous patterns of movement. So that you see the characters, the intermittent, I guess I'm saying the intermittent quality you get with the cutting in other films is often given to us through this kind of popping in and out of the frame and different areas of the frame in the longer shots in, in Raining in the Mountain. It's like, a, in the, like the advent calendar effect. You open up this window, oh, there's something going on. And then, oh, there's something over there. That is still within a single frame, whereas in the other films, he chops it up more, I think, mm-hmm. into cuts. So again, as I say, he tried lots of things, in, in different things in, in different films. I don't want to leave the suggestion that there isn't a lot of action in the film, because there is, but it's really in like the second half. I mean, he really, another daring thing I think he tries to do is to delay what the Kung Fu fan would want, which is lots of fights, to build and build and build to a situation where the fights really feel satisfying because they're the culmination of all these conflicts that have been going on up till then. So then he can just pile them up one after the other. We can have several fights, several extreme action sequences, and wrap it all up with the, um, the capture of of White Fox by these amazing concubines that, <laughs> that Mr. Uh, Mr. Wu Wai has in his, uh, in his uh, harem, I guess. Uh, just, I mean, who else subdues somebody with these long sashes, yellow and gold, yellow and red sashes? You know, it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that. I also think it's interesting that there's um, this natural landscape is always there in King Who. I mean, that would be something else to point out, that mm-hmm. if you look at the Shaw Brothers films, we tolerate it, but they look pretty phony. I mean, they did have exteriors. They have the big studios, you probably know, in Clearwater Bay. With They had their own lake. They had lots of hillsides. They had, and they built villages in, in these places. But you're still in a studio milieu. You know, you've still this artificial surroundings. Absolutely. And as soon as we've had the exterior long shots, Bang, we go into the studio interiors and they all, they look great, but they're all very phony looking, you know, at some level. Mm. And, you know, in this movie, I don't think there's a single set. I think that everything was shot on location. 
I mean, it's just incredible the way he lights and shoots these real spaces. And the same thing with the natural stuff. It's really out there, you know, in, in the Korean, you know, landscape. So the sense of, of, of just a kind of a different visual texture than you get in your classic Hong Kong sword play or Kung Fu film, something that really looks real, that's really specific to King Hu. And you don't find it as much until you get to people like Choi Hak later who go who do go on location more. But but the this whole atmosphere of, of a real world, a natural world that surrounds this action is much stronger, I think, in this movie than you would get in your classic, uh, in the other films of the 70s that you'd get from Hong Kong. Not only does it tie into the storylines of his movies as well, but it's an advantage that he got from leaving Hong Kong, right? He yeah. has access to all this diverse uh, landscapes that are in um, all of his subsequent movies. Taiwan and South Korea, yeah, absolutely. He can really explore those areas. And he was... He was patient about this. I mean, he even while there were still shooting, raining in the mountain, he was asking his location scouts to find more monasteries for them to shoot in because he just thought he just had to see as many as possible. So, I mean, he really wanted to almost explore those worlds through through the act of filmmaking. Again, another reason why it just took him so long to make his films. So watching King Hu's movies, um, beyond latching on to the virtuosity of his filmmaking technique, the other thing um, that you immediately notice is his iconic female fighters. Right. Um, this starts out right away with Come Drink With Me, continues straight through his filmography. Uh, the depiction of these women is very striking and modern. Um, they're taken, you know, they're no-nonsense women taken very seriously by the movie, by the other characters. Um, you know, they're often the most poker-faced and determined person in the movie. Um, the most you'll get is maybe like a smirk, you know, out of them after a brutal yep. sword fight. Whereas in, you know, the Golden Swallow movie, we see her laugh. She smiles when she talks. She cries. She emotes. That doesn't happen in King Who movies. Um, throughout the 70s, he consistently worked with Shi uh, Fong, who, of course, appears in Raining in the Mountain. Um, what can you tell us about her in this equally iconic aspect of King Who's movies? Well, he did. He did pick up on something that's there in the Chinese martial arts tradition. The the woman warrior is just as much an important part of that long-standing epic tradition in literature and other arts uh, as is the male warrior, the knight, the chivalric knight. Uh, but it was downplayed, as we mentioned, by the Shaw brothers, who had a lot of very iconic young male stars they wanted to promote, and could create these plots that Chang Che liked of staunch masculinity. But you're right there that uh, King Hu really uh, amped up that role for female fighters. And um, they are, he might like multiplying them too. So that in his inn films, for instance, you have typically the woman who runs the inn. She's pretty tough. But you've also got all her waitresses who all know Kung Fu, it turns out, and <laughs> subdue these bullies and gamblers that show up inside these inns and get drunk and make for trouble. And by the end, you have these collaborations, really, between male and female uh, warriors that are really intense. So, for instance, the Valiant Ones has a husband-wife team that are just incredible. And she, both of them have mastered the so-called shadowless swordplay, where they can... Uh, vanish and reappear in different spots of the uh, frame uh, at will. They're so fast, basically. They're not, it's not supernatural. They're just really fast. And so uh, he gives kind of parity to the women's martial arts skills, the men's. But as you say, they're, they're determined, they're, they have integrity, and they're, um, 
they're they're heroic in this in, in the same way that men are, but they also don't have that braggadocio that a lot of a lot of the male characters do. Um, when they show up, you know, there's this kind of jubilation I think that wells up in the spectator, like you know you're in good hands. You know these people can take care of this. You know that quiet determination you get in like some American westerns with. You know, Gary Cooper or James Stewart, they just show up. They don't have to show off. They just handle it, you know. And that sort of straightforward, you know, brisk um, hum humility, actually, is so marked, I think, in, in King Who. And it's not at all the same as you get, even in somebody as great and iconic as Bruce Lee, who just struts. I mean, that guy swaggers. And it's fine. He earned it. That's a, no problem. <laughs> But but it's not the same as this kind of completely quiet, straight on professionalism that you get from both male and female characters in King Who films. He also, of course, manages to make use of the great uh, a great quality that he has in all his films, but it's especially on display with the female characters is costuming. His films are superbly costumed, and he loves to play with color of women's garments so that in a film like The Fate of Lee Khan, all the different waitresses are dressed in different colors. And so when they when they fight, it's a rainbow. This is moving across the frame of all these different colors. This is something, actually, I think that uh, Chang Che picks up on. If you know those later films of Chang Che of the later 70s, the Five Venom films, they're called, that he likes to outfit his, his boys in these different, very striking, almost circus-like, different color co coordinated costumes. But King, who got there first, I think? He had a much subtler eye for color, and uh, the costumes particularly of the female characters show that up. Moving past uh, the two mountain films, which are considered his last significant works generally, um, Hong Kong cinema, particularly in this fertile period, was always on the move, constantly reinventing itself. How did martial arts cinema change again after who made his contributions to the genre? Well, you have uh, some different phases. You have the, the Shaw brothers who are pushing their formula very hard through the 70s. They eventually give up and stop making films uh, in the mid-80s, around 85. They sort of fade out production. and so, But that's partly because they had to respond to the, the threat of competitors. Bruce Lee was huge, and he was working for a different company, Golden Harvest. And he um, created a whole new boom in the martial arts field of rather cheap kung fu movies that could still could be sold on the international market. The international market for most Shaw Brothers pictures wasn't that strong outside of Asia. I mean, Shaw Brothers really was the funnel, the alternative to Japan for Asian uh, film um, exhibitors theater chains and Shaw Brothers themselves owned a big theater chain. So they were able to, to kind of compete within Asia. But once the, the Kung Fu films broke out on the Western market in uh, the mid to late, well, really the early seventies, they um, had to compete with other, other talents. Bruce Lee was the most obvious, but he died young, but along came Sammo Hung Jackie Chan, Yun Biao, and many other martial artists who pushed in different directions, for instance, toward martial arts comedy. Now, again, there were some Shaw Brothers films that were very much Kung Fu comedy, but Jackie Chan really made that work and Sammo Hung as well. So there was that to contend with. There were also a lot of martial artists themselves, trained martial artists who decided to make independent films. Yun Wo Ping, one of the most famous choreographers now would be an example of that. He went into directing and directed some very good films like Legend of a Fighter for small companies. So there was a lot of competition in the market. 
At the same time, Hong Kong audiences were changing. By the early 80s, Hong Kong audiences were much more exposed to Western culture, Western music, Western uh, comic books, uh, Western movies especially. And so the Shaw Brothers formula kind of to look kind of old-fashioned, old generation, you know, more baby boomer uh, entertainment than actually what young audiences wanted. So in the 80s, you have a whole new set of, gener of directors coming along. Choi Hawk would be the best example, who's catering with action comedies like James Bond films and updating martial arts films in various ways and creating musicals and all kinds of other genres that Shaw Brothers really couldn't compete with in terms of their audience. Shaw Brothers went into television. They decided that's where the money was. Whereas the 80s was really an era for younger, a younger generation of filmmakers, the so-called Hong Kong New Wave, and commercial filmmakers like Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and others. So the 80s things just explode. And even directors who come out of Shaw Brothers initially, like John Woo, wind up working for these younger talents like Choi Hak, making what we now think of as these classic action pictures like The Killer and Hard Boiled and other films that just catapult people to success. People like Chow Yun-Fat, who was already a, a TV star, becomes a huge, huge movie star, the biggest movie star in Asia, except for Jackie probably, uh, uh, because of these new action pictures that are created, gangster pictures, kind of neo-noir um, crime films, urban action pictures. And that's where we, you know, that's where they just took off in the early 80s and made huge, huge success around the world with these films. So King Hu is kind of out of step with all of that. He's not really making pure martial arts pictures in the late 70s, early 80s. And he never really tried to pursue the uh, crime film, even though late in his life, he was negotiating for a, a thriller to be made in LA. Uh, he makes a film called The Juvenizer in Taiwan. His only contemporary life film, a comedy. Not a very good film, I think. I haven't seen it in a long time and I'd like to see it again, but the memory is Nobody really liked it. It really wasn't suitable for his talent. And he tried to make other pictures. He tried to launch other projects. Choi Hak, who had a big veneration for King Hu, tried to get him to do a film called The Swordsman. But they clashed, as everybody does with Choi Hak sooner or later. And so he wound up uh, leaving that project. The irony of this is really striking because this is when King Hu's reputation is growing so fast and big in the West. People, there are film festivals devoting whole sections to him. Books are being written in Japanese about him. Everywhere, King Hu is, is, is realized by the 80s and early 90s as one of the top Chinese directors, and indeed, arguably, one of the best directors of the 1970s anywhere. But he can't get any funding for his films. He can't get any purchase on these. He makes another film with Sammo Hung, uh, Painted Skin. It's hard to say how much of that is his, because again, he kind of left the project. Mainly, he moved to, uh, to California, as you know, and, and tried to make other projects here in the U.S. The most famous one was called, variously, I Go Ono, The Battle of Ono, something like that. Today, I think we'd find this a very exciting project. The plan was he wanted to make a film about Chinese railroad workers during the expansion of the West. So it'd be kind of a Western. It was kind of billed that way. Um, these Chinese workers who are working on the railroad, eventually, though, they accidentally discovered gold. And so they they set out to actually mine their own gold mine. And this becomes a, a really a, a, a political film in a way. It becomes a social commentary film about how these recent immigrants get, you know, try to live the American dream and, and get foiled in doing that. And he worked for years on this project. And 
just before he died, he was, it looked like he might actually be able to do it. A woman named Sarah Pillsbury, who was uh, a producer of some of those big indie films of the 80s, like Desperately Seeking Susan, was very interested in his project and got money from Goldcrest in England to finance this film. And they got Chow Yun-Fat to agree to be in it as the main character. Now, this was really, you know, for Sarah Pillsbury, this was like the last chance after many, many years of trying to do this. Mm-hmm. This seemed to be like perfect because now an American company might come in and go in with Goldcrest to make this picture. Well, King Hu was preparing the film and uh, his doctor said, look, you better have a checkup before you do this. And they checked and found that he had some heart trouble and said, look, we'll just give you an angioplasty. And they gave him an angioplasty that botched and he uh, had a brain seizure and died. So he was as close to making this, this film as he ever was on uh, the, the when, when he died. And the striking thing is, I think today, that film would really be interesting. I think today people would be extremely interested if he made the film then, back in the mid-90s. But even now, if somebody made this film, I think people would be quite interested in it. But um, it didn't happen. So the last, you know, from 19... Was it 1980 or so on? His career is not for the last 17 years of his life. His career was not very fruitful. It's a real pity because he was recognized as a great filmmaker. He just couldn't make films. Right. I mean, you know, Choi Hark remade Dragon Inn twice. He had a lot of fans in the industry. Oh, absolutely. Um, and Swordsman, you know, I think you couldn't get a clearer, you know, the finished film, despite their attempt to collaborate on it. It's every in every way a Choi Hark movie you know from the propulsive pacing the relentlessly moving camera the exaggerated angles the color temperatures even you know the focal lengths I mean there's no King Who in this really to my eyes I mean Anne Hoy worked on it she shot some of it to help King Who I mean there are many hands but when you work on a Choi Hark film he takes it over it's his film that's for sure even if he brings you on and his films are great of course I think he's a fine director. He's an extraordinary director at his best. I mean, I'd say The Blade is one of the absolutely great films of the 1990s, without any doubt. So, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's it's a pity with different artistic personalities just don't work well together. And clearly, uh, you know, the Taiwanese film industry had enough sort of, I guess I would say, almost inertia to accept King Hu because they really didn't have much going for themselves at that level of prestige filmmaking. They made a lot of films, but that level of prestige filmmaking, he was really it. And so they could, I won't say market his career, but they could, uh, he could have a certain stature in that industry that he wouldn't have had in Hong Kong. But unfortunately that, that too came to, to an end. So yeah, it's a real pity, but fortunately we have all these films and some of them aren't as easy to see as others. I mean, it's been very gratifying to see how many versions of Touch of Zen have come out and others, some of his, many of his best films are available. There's two or three others that really need to be seen more. I mean, I would say Fate of the Con and especially the Valiant ones. Really, the Valiant ones is really not easy to see because he That's owned, the one, yeah. We showed owned, Fate of the Con a couple of years ago at the Cinematheque. It's, yeah, I love it. Yeah. yeah, it's very good. And gold that's owned by Golden Harvest. It's easier to get. I don't know that it's out on DVD though yet. Maybe it is. I think but, um, Film Movement put it out. Did they put it out? Okay. Yeah. okay. But, but the Valiant ones is the big gap. We do need that one out there because that sure. is extraordinary and it's it's hard to see in any situation. But nonetheless, it's still a pretty, we're pretty lucky to have those films in a way to go back to the beginning in a way I could never see them in the 1970s. I mean, in the 1970s, there was scarcely any videotape, of course. But even in the 80s, when videotape came along, 
his films were shown. There were these Japanese videotapes I bought of crappy copies with the frame cut off because it weren't scoped and all that stuff. I mean, we're so lucky to have what we have now with something like this beautiful copy of um, of Raining in the Mountain. I mean, it is really an exquisite looking movie. Absolutely. Um, so finally, you know, you mentioned the blade, and I think we can talk about the some of the tremendous influence King Who's had even to this day. You know, this influence seems to be getting more and more explicit. Even we can think of Touch of Sin, you know, or Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin, yep. Crouching Tiger. These are like essentially extended homages. Yep. Um, then there's things farther afield like Goodbye Dragon Inn, yep. and these are just like on the surface homages, yep. you know. Um, He's a fixture of film history now, especially for Asian filmmakers. He really is um, a kind of landmark figure where the people look to him and say, you know, they want maybe bask a little bit in the in the borrowed glory. They have a sense that, you know, like Goodbye Dragon is a perfect example. There's a film that both celebrates that era of Hong Kong cinema, of Chinese cinema generally, but also at the same time says in the nostalgia mode, it's gone too late. Sorry. Uh, and and it's it's that's that kind of quality. But yeah, you get, I mean, clearly from King Hu to Crouching Tiger to Hero, the China, the Chinese mainland film. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty straight line of descent from King Hu. It's ironic that now today, I mean, someone like King Hu could probably work in mainland cinema as a you know a prestige director because he would have that kind of cloud. But uh, if you except for the political stuff, of course. So it's, it's, you know, he's just such a unique figure. And it does remind you of how important certain things are, certain accidents of history. If Touch of Zen had not been given a special prize at Cannes in 1973, there's a good chance we wouldn't have known about him very well now. Because the French then, of course, they paid attention. It won at Cannes. They wrote up about him. Other festivals got interested. They started showing his films and so on. And the kind of the snowballing, it reminds you of how festivals play such an important role in, in film culture. And the journalists and critics who attend film festivals, who write about them and talk about them are our gatekeepers. They open up the door and say, look, here's something to pay attention to. So these institutions really do launch people into wider recognition uh, in an international context in a way we often don't appreciate. We often don't think so much about these things. We think of festivals as just red carpet events, but they're crucial to our learning about the history of cinema we wouldn't otherwise know. I couldn't agree more. Uh, thank you so much, David, for sharing your knowledge with us today on the podcast. Thanks, David. Thank you.